0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Is the Ukraine war one of history's turning points? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy and global politics. And today I'm your host for a special series on Vox Conversations. The War in Ukraine Explained. In this four-part series, we're going to attempt to bring clarity to one of the biggest and most confusing political events of our lifetimes. This week, in our fourth and final installment, we're going to discuss the really big picture of the war, what Putin's invasion and Ukraine's stiff resistance means for the future of Europe and global politics. My guest to help us understand all of this is Ivan Krastev, a political scientist, author, and the chairman of the Center for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, Bulgaria. He's the co author of The Light That Failed, a book on the collapse of democracy in the former communist states of Eastern Europe, and a leading commentator on European geopolitics. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. I want to start by talking really specifically about the way that Europe has reacted to the invasion. I'm wondering if you were surprised by the degree to which uh, the EU in particular managed to act in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine on economic and security and political fronts almost astonishingly quickly and effectively. Or maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe you'll take issue with the way that I framed this and maybe Europe's response wasn't as effective as, as many people thought it was. Regardless, I, I'm curious for your take on the really swift reaction in Brussels and elsewhere.
2: Now listen, the European reaction surprised Europeans themselves but you should try to understand that there are at least three things that for Europe was kind of a world-changing in what happened. In the last decades, Europeans managed to convince ourselves that a major war is not possible in Europe anymore. Conflicts, yes. Kind of limited operations, yes. But a major war in which basically one country starts a fight against another country where basically tanks are clashing with tanks. Europe believed that this can happen in other places, but not in Europe. And then suddenly, overnight, you see a war which looks like a war film we have been watching about World War Two. Secondly, in a certain way, Europeans understood that we should also blame ourselves for this happening because both in 2008 and 2014, we never really took seriously President Putin's attempt to convince us that basically the dissolution of the Russian Empire was not a good idea. And certainly, to be honest, United States also played a role in all this. So for the Europeans, it's always much easier to act when basically you know that Americans are on your side. So these three things created something very important, a public opinion reaction, which was really moral outrage. And secondly, what is very important is that public opinions aligned, while in most of the other crises that Europe has been seeing before, there was a major distinction between how the North is going to react, how the South, how the East, how the West. So this level of European unity was not only the unity on the level of governments, but it was unity on the level of the public opinions. And here comes the biggest question. I do believe Europe did relatively well till now in responding. The problem is how long this could be sustained and what is going to be the long-term implication of what is happening. And don't forget also that for some of the countries, this was really a major change. There was this uh, nice observation by a colleague of mine who said on one and the same day when Mr. Putin started war in Ukraine, he basically killed Swedish neutrality and German pacifism. It also very much changed the East European's view on migration. So you ended up with Germany, which now declared that they're going to invest 100 billion euro in their defense. The same Germany that didn't have a single drone till now because it believed it is unethical to use drones in a war. Sweden, traditionally neutral, starting discussing joining NATO, and the same Eastern Europe that basically was against getting 10,000 Syrians coming from the previous war with two millions in Poland. So this is a different Europe. Europe has changed. We don't know how this is going to end up, but this is a moment of a dramatic change for Europe.
1: So I want to take each of those pieces that you referenced there in turn. There's a lot going on there. But the part I want to start with is Germany. Probably the most dramatic and influential given Germany's significance for the European Union and its economic clout, sort of in general. There have been debates about Germany rearming for years, but it it seemed like there was this really solid quasi pacifist consensus inside Germany. You were just alluding to it. And and yet it it evaporated almost overnight in terms of the increase in defense spending. It's really striking, not only that it happened, but that it was a center left government that implemented the changes. It's not the far right nationalists. So is the reason that this shift happened seemingly overnight just the sheer surprise of the Russian invasion? Was it something that had been brewing for a long time inside Germany and was just sort of harder to see? How did Germany get to the place where it just ended up? Listen, of course it didn't start just on the night
2: of the invasion. The Germans for the last several years was trying to recognize that they betted too much on the idea of the end of history They betted too much on the idea that economic interdependence is enough to create a secure world. So Germany was more and more realizing the fact that many things are really changing. But the biggest problem for the German leaders, and uh, don't forget, it was left, not so much the right, that start asking questions, how far we can go. It was the current deputy chancellor, Mr. Habeck, who even before the elections went to Ukraine and said, we should arm them we cannot pretend that basically nothing is happening so from this point of view the greens very much challenged the prevailing consensus and they were in a good position to do it because the germany was the peace party this was the most pacifistic one basically this was the one that came out of the anti-nuclear arms protest in Germany in 60s and 70s. So and it was the Greens now who said, listen, if we value our way of life, if we value our political system, we cannot go like this. The second thing that really changed was the explosion of the public outrage after the war. Listen, German public opinion. Even now, we don't know for how long it's going to be excited about rearmament. But German public opinion was really trying to define Germany as a civilian power. German public opinion was traditionally extremely critical to the American military operations out of area for the last 30 years. The Germans really tried to believe that you don't need to have an army. What really matters is a soft power and economic power. And suddenly, you see the violation of the territorial integrity of a big European state. So it might be Chancellor Scholz simply understood that this was the moment. If he's not going to do it now, he's going to do it never and then Germany is going to be in a very difficult position. And the second factor that contributed incredibly, all those Baltic states, Poland and others, they looked into Germany and said, listen, you're also partially guilty for what is happening. For too long you have been pretending as if Putin is never going to attack. So this combination of factor created a situation in which Germany said it's time for change and basically the idea of change and that we have, kind of a change of epoch, something that come from the speech of Chancellor Scholz, which was critically important. Germany decided that they don't have a choice. And for the moment, the public opinion basically stands where it is. But it's interesting. And don't forget, this pacifistic tradition is very strong. It was basically the identity of post-World War II Germany. So it's not easy to see how this process is going to continue. It's not only about money. This is about when you're going to have all these arms, how you're going to use them against whom you're going to use them.
1: Yeah, that's one question that as I've been thinking through the German rearmament decision has, has come up again and again in my mind, which is Russia's military has performed extraordinarily poorly in Ukraine so far. It is hard to imagine at this point Russia posing at least in the near term a serious threat to a NATO state or to invade NATO because they're currently tied down in Ukraine and not performing very well against a dramatically weaker military force and a very little incentive to engage in uh you know any kind of anti-NATO adventurism directly. In that sense, right, you could make an argument and I've seen variants of this argument when it comes to the US forward deployments in Europe that well this war doesn't prove we need more it proves we need less or or, or the same amount, right? Because Russia should be adequately deterred given their own failures and their own weaknesses that are clearly on display. But that's not the thinking in Berlin, and it doesn't sound like it's your thinking as well. Now, listen, the
2: most important is the following. It's true that the Russian army has been totally underperforming in Ukraine. And this should not surprise us very much, because if you go to the history of asymmetrical wars, particularly of this kind of colonial wars that we know from the second half of the 20th century, there is a famous Harvard study of this. In 55% of the cases, this is the weaker power that prevails. This is the motivation of the people. The problem is that if Russia is going to feel weaker, particularly in conventional forces, This increases the risk for Russia deciding to use tactical nuclear weapons to make a point. Because don't forget, Russia is now in a situation in which it is totally sanctioned. So its economy is under huge pressure. You have a political leader that cannot afford to lose. Because if he's going to lose this war, he's going to lose power. He's going to lose everything. So from this point of view, the underperformance of the Russian forces in a certain way increases the risk, then simply decreases the risk because there is one thing that Russia cannot tolerate, and this is being perceived as weak. I do believe this is part of the German thinking, but also Germans understand also something very important that if they're going to pretend that as if nothing has happened, their policies are not going to resonate with the fears, particularly of the East European neighbors, because all these East European countries, from time to time, irrationally, always live with the idea that Russia is coming. Listen, in my view, the two most paranoid animals in the world is the lonely dictators like the Russian presidents, but also the small states living on a border of big countries, which is the East Europeans. Both of them basically live in a state of a permanent paranoia that something is threatening them. So from this point of view, also, East Europeans said, we were right. You were telling us that Russia will never do it that military power does not matter anymore. So for Germany, in order to keep its leadership position in the European Union, it was critically important to show that they understand the concerns of the others. And this is why the rearmament was also kind of a message to the others, we should take us seriously, we understand that the world is changing and you can rely on us. Particularly, and in my view, this is something that is less discussed, When Germans were seeing what is happening, they were very happy with how the United States basically behaved in this crisis. But the Germans has a very kind of nervous memories from the previous term of uh, the previous American president. So the idea that something also can change in the American politics and they can live on their own pushes them very much that they should show seriousness when it comes to security in a very traditional
1: sense. So that's really interesting to me. Right, because it suggests that there's at least some possibility that this war hastens the rise not of a, a sort of stronger transatlantic relationship in perpetuity, but rather the rise of a Europe that has the capability to act autonomously in strategically. Whereas in the past it had you know, a lot of European foreign policy had been deeply embedded in its relationship with the United States. But that, especially with Germany, it seems like the logic that you were just describing indicates that that could change. We could be on a trajectory towards a more autonomous and independently assertive Europe. Listen, it's about hedging. And don't forget, Germany never acts like a hedge fund.
2: Germany is much more a pension fund, (laughs) uh, which is trying basically to reduce risks. And here's the risk. On one side, you have Russia, who is not simply aggressive, but quite weak, which is going to be economically very much destabilized. And for the Russians to make a point, Obviously, further military kind of actions cannot be excluded. And then you have the United States. And at this moment, I do believe Germany is very happy to see the transatlantic alliance being strengthened. So the problem is not that Europe is going to run out of the United States. But the question is, what is going to happen if there is are going to be a next American president who said, listen, fed up with Europe. It's about China. We should focus on China. Why are we going to keep our troops in Europe, Europeans are rich enough and numerous enough to defend themselves. And then, if you basically imagine such type of a scenario, and such type of a scenario is not totally unimaginable, then Germany is asking question, what about the European Union? And the European Union should not be taken for granted, and Germans know it very well. Don't forget, Brexit exists, but there are different governments that can come. And Germany cannot rely simply on its economic power, particularly keeping in mind that if the relations with China soar between the United States and China, if basically you're going to end up in a world in which economic power is very much weaponized, what we see in the case between West and Russia, also German business is not going to look in the way it is looking now. And honestly speaking, if you go beyond energy, Russia is not particularly important for Germany. Germany is trading more with Poland than with Russia but this is not the case of China. So this new more confrontational more weaponized type of economic interdependence is a game change for Germany. So in the world in which everything is weaponized also it's not bad to have a traditional weapons.
1: It strikes me at least as you know in, in my hat as an American and an American politics observer that it's less likely that the U.S. makes a strategic decision that China is more important than Europe because every president for a while now has been saying that and they've consistently failed to execute on it. I I sort of am intrinsically skeptical of this pivot to Asia thing. What does strike me as more plausible is that American domestic politics reduce the U.S. involvement in Europe, right? You get a really persistent kind of Trump-like – Strain in the Republican Party that argues for a kind of renewed American isolationism, withdrawal from global responsibilities, and a fortress America that shuts out external influences. To what extent, then, does this resonate in European capitals, this particular vision of the future? How much does sort of the specter of a Trumpist Republican Party loom over their thinking? And how much of it has been assuaged by what strikes me and strikes you as as a Biden performance that's been very much in line with what Europe wants from America?
2: Listen, this is very much there. Don't forget that during the Trump's presidency, Germany also was a country which was particularly vulnerable Exactly because it's very strong relations with the United States, but also because of the decision of President Trump that Germany is not doing the right things, that basically Germany is not paying enough, that Germany should do other things. And also there was a major value gap because for the German very kind of a liberal consensual politics, most of the things that basically Trump stands for is very alien. And then what you realize about the United States, and this is very important, on one level you have now a certain type of a unity between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Basically, everybody is anti-Russia and supporting the Ukrainians. But on the other side, if you see to the domestic politics articles published in these same American newspapers that are talking about the unity on foreign policy, this uh, article is about a civil war. So in a certain way, can you be really rely on an ally that claims that it is in a case of a civil war? And also on one level, you have the Republican Party, which basically is America first. Of course, they can be very much anti-Russian, but does it mean that they are necessarily going to consult Europeans for what America is going to do? Because this is the difference with Biden. Biden made a kind of an extra effort to try to show to the Europeans that they matter that their voice is there. There was a lot of coordination. When you see the sanctions, the sanctions has been consulted with the Europeans even before the war started. And then you can end up with a situation in which Europe is taken for granted. And Europe fears this. Secondly, even when they look at the left of the Democratic Party, it's not about anti-European sentiments, but it's very much about anti-war sentiments because they see a big part of the young people in the United States being really tied up of America being in a wars here and there. So to what extent these people are also going to insist that Europe should be defended, that NATO matters, that Article 5 matters. So for the Germans, all these questions are not abstract questions. And then, as I told you, they look around Europe and Europe is much more vulnerable than it looks like. And the position of Germany in this Europe is much more vulnerable because this is the problem of being the biggest country and the most powerful in the Union. You're all the time accused either for what you're doing or for what you're not doing. And now at the moment in which Germany basically goes into identity change, this is really a major, major story. Plus, you're going to imagine that dramatically, because of COVID, because of the war, this sense of something something dramatic happens, this sense of catastrophe is in Europe. The best history of Europe after 1945, written by Tony Judd, is called post-war. And in a certain way, the post-war has two meanings. Of course, the European Union was born out of the ashes of the World War II. But secondly, Europe was the place where the war was seen as unthinkable. And now you see first the war, but secondly, you see a war in which most of the people as if tried to repeat and to remake the World War II. President Putin talking about denazification at the same time the Ukrainian cities being destroyed by bombs in the way they had been destroyed in the World War II. So this unsettles. This goes also on a level which is beyond rational calculations and strategies. You have this feeling that we are not living in the same world in which we had been living yesterday. Probably it's not a post-war, probably it's a pre-war world.
1: Yeah, you saw all of these compilations very early in the conflict of newscasters, mostly American and British newscasters, saying things like, I can't believe this is happening in a civilized place, looking at scenes in Ukraine. And a lot of the the gist of these compilations was this is profoundly racist, it is treating conflicts in Syria or Yemen or genocides in Myanmar as something that happens in other places and that other implicitly lesser people do. But there's a secondary meaning, I think, to it that speaks to the point about European identity you were just talking about, that World War II had been a civilizing event for Europe, even if it was itself so profoundly barbaric, perhaps the worst thing ever to happen to humanity, the worst thing that humans had ever done, it had transformed at an ideological and even cultural level, not just a political level, the European continent into something that it wasn't before what it had been racked by centuries of war and conflict. And so it's this identity displacement, this ideological unsettling that I think speaks to a lot of the changes that you're describing, right? It's not just political calculation. It's also an uprooting of a sense of what Europe itself was among many Europeans.
2: Totally. Listen, I do believe you touched on something very, very fundamental. This war is destroying the intellectual foundations on which Europe was based. There was a shared experience and this was World War II. By the way, it was shared not simply in the European Union. It was also shared by the Ukrainians, by Russians, but by Belarusians. This was this kind of a common history, which was traumatic, but it was common. And the story was that it was something that cannot be trivialized. You're not going to believe that any enemies that you're going to fight are going to be Nazi. Nazi was the evil. It was not just any enemy. So what happened, and I do believe on the level of language, one of the things that President Putin did by using this type of an anti-Nazi rhetoric is to destroy this common memory. You can like or dislike President Zelensky. You can like or dislike Ukraine. But the moment when you declare that in Ukraine you're fighting Nazis in the way you had been fighting during the World War II, then European history does not have a meaning anymore. All this experience is totally, totally kind of irrelevant to what we're seeing. And I believe this scared Europeans very much. And the other thing that scared us was that suddenly, for the last 30 years, but even in the last decade of the Cold War, people are not talking about nuclear weapons. They were there. But you're not talking about them. In a certain way, they were there in order to discipline our imagination, to discipline our passions. But this is not something that you're talking about. And when on the third day of the conflict, a leader of a nuclear power makes a very clear hint that if he decides he can use nuclear weapons, then... The two things on which all the intellectual foundations of Europe have been built never again about World War II, and secondly, that nuclear weapons are never going to be used. All this, in a certain way, made people to understand that the world has changed to the extent that they didn't realize. and Because it came so suddenly, and because we have been so unprepared for this. Then you understand the scale also of the public reaction and also something that a very close friend of mine who is a visual artist made an interesting point to me. He said, when I was seeing all this exodus of people from Ukraine, all these refugees and so on, and comparing with previous kind of a outflow of people from conflicts, there was only one major difference. Basically, destroying hospitals, killing people, killing kids. This is not that we see for the first time there. But for the first time, you have people that have been running out of the war with their pets. You have all these dogs and cats. And when he said this, I was very much shocked. But then I realized something extremely, extremely simple. Paradoxically, the pets very much humanized all these people. You cannot call these people economic migrants. All these women and children keeping their dogs and cats with them and suddenly of course you can say this is an interesting very European question should we be proud is the fact that Poles now are hosting more than 2 million Ukrainians or should we be ashamed because the same Poles didn't want to host 20,000 Syrians part of it could be racism part of it can be many other things but also this is the war that Poles identified with this is the war that they understand I have been always thinking that part of the Empathy and solidarity with the victims come not from knowing very well the victims, but from knowing well the aggressor. <laughs> Strangely enough, this is basically the aggressor and knowing the aggressor that creates solidarity. So, countries which otherwise, till yesterday, were totally closed and totally unhappy to get any foreigners coming, suddenly opened and opened not simply because their governments decided to open. Almost two thirds of the people who are now in Poland are living in the private houses. There was just people took them to their houses and taking care of them. By the way, in the long term, this can become a big problem because in three, four, six months, you can take care of a family. But how long you can do it? How long you can do it? financially, psychologically. So many of the problems of the Europe are coming. I don't believe that the worst is behind us, but people are going to be wrong if they don't understand how dramatic the change is on the level of society, on the level of the union, even on the level of political leaders. I was talking to some of the European leaders that have been listening to the first virtual digital conversation that they have with Zelensky after the beginning of the war. And when he, from the screen, told the European Union leaders that he have been there for their summit, that probably this is the last time they see him, and he cannot promise that he's going to see them again because he can be killed. Listen for political leaders that all their life, the only one that they know is elections. This was a totally different experience.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll have more of my conversation with Ivan Krastev right after this.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. com slash box.
1: So the factors that we've been discussing so far all militate towards European unity, right? This sense of a shared connection to this conflict, of a shared understanding of the aggressor. But there are also really important points of disunity here, and you know, a lot of your work is focused on problems in democracy in, in Eastern Europe and the post-communist space in particular. And so one striking point of comparison that has really sort of grabbed me during this conflict has been the divergence between Poland and Hungary, right? So on a lot of these intra-European questions, these two conservative, arguably authoritarian political parties that have been in charge of them, Law and Justice and Fides. We're really lockstep on issues like immigration, LGBT rights, even things like the independence of courts and European rule of law mechanisms. These were were probably the two closest allies on these issues in Europe. But now, these two countries are bitterly divided over Ukraine. What explains the different trajectories between these two countries? I do believe you
2: made a very important point. We now see the unity of Europe. There is a lot of disunity behind this unity. And in a certain way, this this unity also can exploit. The idea to believe that this was the kind of the moment that you get together is a good story, but it's not the only story that can come out of this conflict. And of course, before Hungary and Poland were seeing their sovereignty very much being threatened mainly by Brussels. So they had been in their rhetorical war with Brussels, basically they were talking about their national sovereignty very much being threatened by European integration. But for very important historical reasons, their nationalism and also their political leaders made a very different choices. Mr. Orban decided to go close to President Putin to develop a special relationship, he's doing the same with the Chinese, and his major understanding was that the future is the East, all this kind of a democratic system does not work. And while he basically was very much supportive to President Trump, but to be honest, even during this Trump period, he was much more kind of hedging with the Chinese and the Russians than simply betting on Trump. And he very much hoped that Trump is going to get into a type of an alliance with Putin. While for the polls, Mr. Kaczynski simply is convinced that President Putin killed his brother. All Polish history, very much, was based on the idea that Russia is the major threat. And when this threat was activated, then the problem of the Polish sovereignty was very much about how to resist Russia. Interestingly enough, and this is something that is worth watching and worth discussing, you can expect that Poland and Hungary will go much more apart than they really did. Because while Poland was very vocal, criticizing the Germans, the French, for basically making different concessions to the Russians, on the night after Mr. Orban had been elected, and on the night on which Mr. Orban declared President Zelensky as one of his enemies, the Polish Prime Minister said, oh, the real problem... For our Russia policy is not Hungary, but is Germany. So still, these two countries try to cooperate while at the same time they're on a the very different position when it comes to Russia. So it's interesting. I don't believe that it's going to be easy for Hungary to be the only one country to veto, for example, a certain type of a sanctions on oil, for example, because then the relations with Poland are going to be really, really deteriorated. But for the moment, Poland is not ready to break its relations with Hungary because they still perceive themselves as fighting on two fronts against Moscow and against Brussels, Berlin. And all this exists in every single country. In a certain way, even if you're going to see the French elections, you're going to see that associations with President Putin did not hurt much. Mrs. Lupin, she did quite well. So domestic politics plays strongly. And this made also, it might be a very strong impact looking at the United States. While you see Republicans and Democrats, almost all Americans being very kind of critical and unhappy with what Putin did, but unlike the Cold War or unlike World War II, this does not bring much more unity when it comes to the domestic politics. America is still as divided as it was. And if you look at the approval ratings of President Biden, you cannot say that this war is a war that consolidated American nations behind the
1: flag. So, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a uh, a study by an American political scientist. It's sort of an experimental study, uh, sort of a research study. It's a multi-design, really fascinating paper that I really like, where she's trying to test what the effects of competition with China are on polarization inside the United States. And you know the expectation is, well, you'll go back to a sort of Cold War politics where everyone is united around opposing the enemy, and there'll be some disagreements at the margin, but ultimately some broad shared points of national unity. But that's, that's not what she found, right? What she found in her experiments, that polarization defines the way that Americans react to China. So instead of bringing us together, uh, increasing the salience of the China threat just leads to blaming the other party for China's – for its rise, for threats to the US and the Pacific, etc. And generally, you end up just having the same partisan argument over a different topic. It doesn't fundamentally refigure the nature of politics. It just reiterates them in a different fora. Obviously, Europe doesn't have the kind of polarization problem that the US does, or at least most European countries don't domestically with a few exceptions. But there is some really sharp and increasing polarization over the European Union itself and over the nature of the European project and how states should relate to it. And I wonder if to sort of build on the point you were just making, you're going to see more unity around the European project in some areas, but also maybe a reiteration of fights over what Europe should be In others, right, the the same argument that's been happening for decades now, increasingly so with the populist right challenge playing out in discussions of of Russia policy now rather than something like immigration.
2: No, you're absolutely right. And for me, this is also a question that is open. And by the way, it can have different answers in different places. Because in a certain way, what we see and what is very different than the world that we know from the 20th century, the power of the external enemy to consolidate the nation is much more questionable today. If you see to some of kind of this political polarization in the United States, you're going to see for the many hardcore Republicans, particularly supporters of President Trump, the only kind of a real enemy worth fighting is President Biden or the Democratic Party. And they're much more ready to ally with the external enemy in order to defeat the domestic one than the other way around. It was in 1848 when the universal suffrage, was introduced in France, there was a very famous poster of this period. And on this poster, there was a worker who has a ballot in one hand and rifle in the other. And part of the interpretation was ballot for the domestic enemy and bullet for the national enemy. I don't believe that this consensus is so strong now. You can see it still that very much... The real war and the real external threat, which is about the very existence of the nation, can mobilize. Listen, Ukraine was a very divided nation. Ukraine was very fragmented. President Zelensky had approval ratings of around 25-30% on the day when the war started. Now his support is 90%. And this is because at some point, when you basically see the war as existential threat, as the very existence of your nation, it's different. But how it works when there is a threat, but this threat is not so existential, if you're living in Spain or Italy and you don't expect President Putin is going to start attacking you immediately, so to what extent you're not much more ready to blame your leadership for making mistakes here and there instead of focusing on this. From this point of view, France is very interesting. Mrs. Le Pen very much focused on the domestic economic issues, while President Macron was very much talking about great geopolitical issues. And she did very, very well. So I believe your question is a very legitimate question, and also it talks something about the new stage of politics in which the information which you are getting, even about the war, is not from a state, but from your information ecosystem. And you can see that in the most divided countries, in a certain way, it's never about Putin. This is about their domestic politics. Tell me who is on the other side in domestic politics, and I'm going to tell you where I am on international issues. The problem whom to trust. And from this point of view, also, I do believe we're slightly underestimating the potential of the Russian to influence European politics, not on the base of saying we are better or we didn't do this or that, but by weaponizing mistrust, which is so strong in European societies. The message, don't trust anybody, is a very popular message in many European countries.
1: I want to focus in on the French situation because when we're talking about unity as you know, it's come up a few times already. and it's at the forefront of a lot of our thoughts right now, where as we're taping this, France is going into its second round of runoff elections between incumbent President Macron and challenger Marine Le Pen from the far right National rally party. And you know, you've mentioned Le Pen a few times. She has been I don't know if I'm going a little too far here, but in my impression, even by the standards of the European far-right populist movement, strikingly associated with Putin. And yet, as you just mentioned a bit ago, she is still within striking distance of the presidency. Polls show her running pretty close to Macron and the race narrowed rapidly before the first round of elections in a way that surprised a lot of observers. So suppose things get even more surprising and she does manage to beat Macron and become France's next president. I mean, it seems kind of hard to overstate the damage that would do to a united Europe or to any kind of united European response to whatever Russia does next in Ukraine or, or in Eastern Europe, for that matter. It's a great question because in a certain way, of course, Ms.
2: LuPen tried to distance herself from President Putin the moment the war started. And this is one of the interesting stories. Even three or four years ago, President Putin was a kind of a hero for the European far-right, because he was the rebel. He was kind of fighting this liberal hegemony, who was staying with them on some of the conservative issues, particularly about social issues, gay marriages, things like this. But on the other side, the far-right are nationalistic parties. And at this moment, their sovereignism goes very much in a clash, with uh, President Putin imperialism, because many of these far-right parties, they like the empire, but they like their own empire. They didn't like the Russian empire. So if, if Mrs. Le Pen is going to be elected, by the way, the shock on the system is going to be incredible. And also, even if she's not going to be elected, there is one fact that should be very clear to everybody who is following European politics. If the people older than 65 were not voting on the first round of the presidential elections in France, Mr. Macron was not going to enter the second round. The second round was going to be a clash between the far right and far left. So we can see that this much more centrist, consensual politics is very much replaced in the younger generations between a much more polarization between far left and far right. So the war cannot compensate for the strong anti-elite sentiments and anti-status quo sentiments in Europe. And before the war, it was, of course, the COVID pandemics and so on. This was kind of a major dividing line where people stand. So how is going to look Europe, which is dominated and in which we have three or four governments that are going to be dominated by far-right politicians? Are they going to ally with Mr. Putin against the United States? This I'm not going to bet on. But of course, this is going to be European Union that is much more going to define itself is in racial, ethnic terms, as a kind of a civilization against the Russian civilization. This is not going to be people who are going to blame Russian regimes for repressing people or repressing media. It's going to be just our empire against your empire. And of course, this Europe is going to be totally fragmented, and it's very much going to depend what is going to happen in the United States. And there is one thing that is very much changed in Europe for the last several years: the intellectual and ideological influence of the American far right on European politics has increased a lot. In a certain way, strangely enough, it is the American far right that replaced Russia and Putin as the major source of ideas and unity on the European far right. So. If you remember, basically, when President Trump went to Warsaw in the beginning of his term, 2017, he had this famous speech in which he talked about the West. But they had two different ideas of the West. One is the West as a kind of a coalition of values, democracy, freedoms, basically the Cold War West. The other is the West basically as the white Christian continent, which is also there. So at the moment, it is not simply is the West going to remain, but which kind of the West is going to be against whom. And uh, from this point of view, of course, President Putin, on one level, of course, believed that he, he is consolidating Russia, and in a way, for the moment, he did, but he became the major father of the new Ukrainian nation, and if he's going to be unlucky, he's going to be also the major consolidating force for Europe, regardless, and will not know what kind of Europe it's going to be. Is the European Union, as we see today, or it's kind of a much more old type of Europe that people remember?
1: All right, we're gonna take one last short break, but stay with us for more of my conversation with Ivan Krastev, coming right up.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
1: That description you gave, it's really resonant in part because I I had a long argument with some folks last week about the the nature and the origins of European liberalism and the extent to which it was tied into colonialism, imperialism, the rise of slavery and and race-based thinking. But one thing that's clear to me if you look at the history of that period is that there was a certain entanglement between the two kinds of Europe that you were describing, right? It was – Yes, we are a community of values. And increasingly those values became more and more coterminous with notions of human rights and democracy in certain places, but it also was a community of European cultural dominance and priority. And those two things were co-entangled and often brought up in the same lens, like what it meant that Europe was superior were our institutions of democracy and our, you know, our modern technology and our commitment to a certain kind of consensual politics. But you know, increasingly, we've seen tension between those two things. Now, in fact, we see them at odds in the way that you were describing, and, and they've been pulled apart in different kinds of Europe. So it's almost as if there's this current conflict in Ukraine is bringing out this much deeper debate over what does Europe stand for and how do we or can we divorce the civilizational ethnocentric understanding of Europe from the values-laden, liberal, pure, human rights-oriented version of the continent.
2: You know, totally. And listen, from this point of view, it's interesting. Russian Empire was the last European continental empire that managed to survive being totally reformulated as the Soviet Union. And then the Soviet Union started to disintegrate. So many of the conflicts that you see in the post-Soviet space very much remind the conflicts that you have in 1960s in the other European empires. In a certain way, If you see what is happening in Ukraine, it's not so different what was between France and Algeria. In the way President Putin is sure that the Ukrainians are Russians, many French politicians were totally sure that Algerians and Algeria is part of France, it's not a colony. And then you have this story with Europe, which I found particularly interesting now, is that it's very difficult to be universalist when you're losing power. The, the peak of European universalism was also the peak of European imperialism. When you believe that you can transform others, this is the moment in which you believe in universal principles, because the universal principle is the idea that others are going to be like you. But what about if you basically see others very different than you starting to assert their power? And this is the major problem of Europe and the major debate that Europe has, because till the World War one, Europe was the world. World War I was called also European War, because this was the war between European empires. And then come the World War II, and after World War II, for sure, neither Soviet Union nor the United States were typical European powers, but Europe was the major stage. Winning the war was basically taking hold of Europe. And then, after the end of the Cold War, European Union came with the third incarnation of its kind of importance and relevance to the world, trying to declare itself to be the laboratory of the world to come. We said, listen, we are not as powerful as the Americans, and we are not the rising power like China, but we are living, we are postmodern, we are post sovereign. This is how everybody is going to be in 20 and 30 years. And then suddenly, We have this history coming back, and from this point of view, this identity of Europe, which you can see in domestic politics, but also in the way we talk about the world, this is going to remain. Europe is important, but Europe is not as central as before. This is probably the most prosperous and, in my view, the most kind of a beautiful province of the world, but this is not the center of the world anymore. And this is even not the center of the world seen from the United States. And also in demographic terms, it's an aging societies and very much shrinking as a part of the global population. So this is why one of the strange impact of the Ukrainian war was that basically Russian invasion in Ukraine pushed Europeans again to walk back in Europe. At the very moment in which Europe started to be much more interested in the world, by the way, starting to face some of its colonial legacies, trying to talk about its relations with Africa and, for example, India in this kind of a new world, comes this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine where everything is about Europe again. And this war is unifying. It could be also provincializing. And one of the biggest problems, not only Europe, but I do believe also the West in general has, is that this war consolidated the West. But we're not doing particularly well trying to consolidate non-Western powers. If you see not only China, but India, South, Africa, Brazil, they abstain. they stay on the fence. This is not their war. And in my view, this is also one of the problems that European Union is going to face if it is going to survive. how you're relevant in the world which is not interested anymore simply to model itself on Europe.
1: Yeah, you know, you see that especially vividly in two countries that are not European exactly on the conventional way that we understand them, but, but certainly close and bordering, by which I mean Turkey and Israel. So Turkey is, does in fact have territory inside Europe and has aspired to join the EU and is a NATO member, but has been alongside Hungary, the NATO member most skeptical of an aggressive response to Russia, most willing to sort of hedge and uh, stay uh, out of the forthright condemnation that you've seen from the other members of the North Atlantic Alliance. And, and Israel also has European ambitions, most notably sort of on a cultural level. This is a little jokey, but also serious. Israel's in the Eurovision Song Competition and has been for a while. And this represents a degree of shared cultural affinity in and in an Israel that looks to Europe as much more of its natural peer than the Middle Eastern countries or at least has for a while and yet Israel too has taken this very sort of geopolitically inclined hedging our bets try to be the mediators Israel and Turkey in fact have been the two countries leading mediation attempts between Ukraine and Russia so like what does that tell us that these particular near European countries so to speak have taken positions like this, very much against the mainstream European consensus, but not like fully pro-Russian either. What does that tell us about Europe's position sort of more broadly as a global power going forward? This is a great question. First of all, imagine the paradox
2: of it all. You have President Putin who claims that he's fighting the Nazi government in Ukraine. And you have the Ukrainians who say that in the face of President Putin, they're fighting the new incarnation of the Nazi Germany, and who is the mediator? Israel. The State of Israel. And then, of course, you have Turkey, a <laughs> NATO member state, and basically the major provider of weapons to Ukraine, particularly the famous Bayraktar drones, but at the same time not putting sanctions and also taking this mediating position. So. I don't believe we're touching on something much deeper, and President Zelensky made this point very clear when he said that he sees the future of Ukraine as a kind of a bigger Israel. And this is the interesting story. This is also one of the paradoxes of the European, particularly East European, far-right. You know, traditionally, East European, far-right was very anti-Semitic.
1: I, I, I come from a family of Holocaust survivors. I'm, that's one I'm familiar with.
2: Yeah, so you know very well. And then you basically see Mr. Orban But even the current Polish government, who were not famous, at least for their constituencies, for being very Jew-friendly, but they are in love with the state of Israel. Because paradoxically, Israel is what all these kind of interwar East European nationalists have been dreaming about, which means it is a democracy but it is an ethnic state at the same time. It's economically extremely successful and economically extremely successful based on a very high technological level. Certainly, this is a military power of its own. They have their nuclear weapons, so they can really defend themselves on not relying on anybody. So this type of a sovereignism of a new kind, the sovereignism of a small state that can impress the world and which can really be all at the table and not on the menu, this is the dream, and this dream, of course, is very much parallel to the idea of European Union in which you're a small or medium-sized country and you're going to succeed not because of your self-sufficiency, not because of the strengths of your military, but also because of cooperations with others. So from this point of view, it's not simply that Israel is now kind of playing this role, but in a many ways, Israel, in a less extent Turkey, is perceived as a model for some of these countries course, it's not easy to be Israel. (laughs) I do believe that what people don't understand is that being in Israel, it means also paying the cost of everything as a way of life and serving in the army and to be ready basically to die as a result of terrorist attack or something else. But my feeling is that Israel simply was the country which never believed that it is a post-war. The war was the reality in which the country was existing. It was adjusted to the war. People can, in a certain way, never forget about the war, even when it is not there. And suddenly, the post-war Europe, which never understood what the Israelis were doing from time to time for very good reasons, suddenly they ended up in the world, which is much more closer to the Israeli experience than to the European experience of yesterday. And this is also the paradox because President Putin, of course, was one of the most kind of uh, Israeli-friendly leaders that Russia have ever produced. Also, Russia was not famous for its uh, pro-Semitic sentiments, Uh, put it mildly. So you have this strange story in which you have the clash between the Jewish idea of universalism coming from the 19th century and the early 20th century, where you believe that emancipation of everybody is the only precondition for the emancipation of the Jews, and this is what European Union, in a way, is about. Human rights, universal rights, and others. And then the idea of a powerful enough nation-state which is capable to defend your own. And Europe is going to be torn apart between these two. Because it is not easy to be universalist, it's not easy to be Israel too.
1: It's not easy to be universalist, right? And you're seeing this, I think, the same dilemma playing out in one of maybe the most important former fully colonized country in the world right now, which is India. India's relationship with the UK is still ongoing, but it's increasingly, especially in this conflict, defined by its strategic relationship with Russia, a legacy of the non-aligned policy from the Cold War. But also, it it too tried to be a country that defined itself on values, right? You know, one of the famous history books written about India is called The Idea of India. It's increasingly being pulled in this nationalist, almost Israeli-like direction that you're describing, but It also, at the same time, really wants to be part of the community of global democracies and to build that as a mechanism for challenging China going forward, which it sees with real justification as a significant enemy. To what extent does India's similarly neutral stance on the conflict or attempt to thread the needle here – Endanger its future relationship with Europe, endanger the idea of a global community of democracies that many have posited, and a future of autocracy versus democracy? How do we take the very big picture here of these global relations using India as uh, one of the key pivot points in the story?
2: My major feeling is that for the last decades, the world became much more global, but not necessarily more universalist. And what we see now is very much the emergence of different regional orders. In which countries like India are very eager to enter into a coalition with Australia, with Japan, with the United States, in order to contain China, but they don't see as their business defending Ukraine when it is attacked, and for them keeping the relations with Russia, 50% of the Indian weapons comes from Russia, is more important than any type of universal values. So when President Biden had his summit of democracy, to which, to be honest, I was quite critical from the beginning, there were 111 countries that were invited, and more than 50% of them did not join Western sanctions on Russia. Because for them, democracy probably matters in certain contexts, and probably for their population, at least for some of them, this is something valuable. But it is not their democracy that defined the nature of their foreign policy. And here, we're going to see much more easier certain type of anti-imperial, anti-authoritarian coalitions to be built on regional level than to believe that this kind of universalist-minded coalition of democracies in the world is going to be the one that is going to fight every new dictator, which is going to do what the Russia did in Ukraine. So, from this point of view, strangely enough, what we see is the West defending its values and itself against the Russian invasion in Ukraine. But at the same time, you also see that for the most of the world, this is not about democracy. This is not about authoritarianism. It's about different geopolitical strategy and what you are saying. India said, Russia is too important for us to have values. And Israelis said, our conflict with Iran and Russia's position on it is much more important. So we're going to the world which seen from outside very much resembles the Cold War. But in a very important way it is not because this world is much more fractured and much more multipolar than the cold war world was and then back then both the united states and soviet union have been universalist powers that believe that they are going to remake others on their model while for the indians for the south africans and others they are not about remaking others they're just not allowing others to remake them
1: Ivan, that's a great note to end this conversation on. Thank you so much. I really appreciated talking to you. I I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you again. It was also my pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to our special series, The War in Ukraine Explained. In case you missed the previous episodes, part one covered the causes of the conflict, part two discussed sanctions, and part three explored the pretty scary nuclear risks that are ongoing right now. All of these are available in the Vox Conversations feed, and you should make sure to subscribe to that feed for more interesting conversations with fascinating thinkers about the war in Ukraine and lots and lots of other topics. Go check it out. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editors, Amy Drosdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. Send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. If you did like this episode, share it with your friends, and please rate and review and subscribe. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours, Sean Ailey.
4: This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen.